welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study. We will be looking back into the uh, book of Ecclesiastes tonight, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, a message entitled The Great Equalizer, The Great Equalizer. And we'll be looking at the topic, the subject of death. Um, death is the great equalizer, no matter how you cut it. And tonight we want to see what we can learn from the subject of death. It's not something we can run away from. It's not something we can ignore. It's an inevitable fact of life. We're all going to die one day unless the Lord returns beforehand. I did some research this past week on the subject of death, and uh, it was interesting to find out that so far this year, in the year 2020, and this is kind of uh, impacted a little bit by the COVID virus, but not a whole lot. I compared other years. So far this year, there was 21 million, and this is climbing each second, but 21,500,000 deaths in the world. There's actually a website you can go to and it records <laughs> the deaths as they're reported in live time. 21,500,000 people died so far this year. That's a little over 111 deaths per minute. Or to break it down even further, about two deaths per second around the world. If you compare that to births, there was 51,200,000. These are rounded off numbers, obviously. 51,200,000 births. And that equals about a little over four births per second. What I found out was that one of the greatest number of deaths occur before a person reaches one year old. So a vast majority of these deaths are deaths of children. There's more deaths before someone reaches the age of one year old than all the other age brackets combined up to the age 55. So you take everybody that died between one year old and 55 and you add them all up, there's more deaths before the age of one than all those. It's pretty amazing. Um, there's so many deaths in the world that in some countries they're finding a hard time locating places to bury folks. And so uh, I think it's in Brazil, there's a, uh, they call it a, a uh, skyscraper, but it's a, it's a skyscraper cemetery. <laughs> and it's 31 stories of dead bodies, of tombs. And they, they, they're starting to build them in, in high-rise buildings now because they're running out of room on the ground. It holds some 147,000 tombs in this skyscraper. Well, death is something that a lot of Americans don't want to face. They don't want to deal with it. Uh, I read this poem this past week from uh, Alfred Lord Tennyson. And after he lost his close friend, Arthur Henry Howman, he wrote this poem called Break, Break, Break when he was down at the seashore and he was looking at the waves. And part of the, the, the poem says this, but oh for the touch of a vanquished hand and the sound of a voice that is still. But the tender grace of a day that is dead will never come back to me. Death is something that's final. You don't get a second chance at dying. The Bible says, for it's appointed unto men once to die, and then the judgment. Mahatma Gandhi, before he died, just before his death, he said this, he's quoted as saying, my days are numbered, I'm not likely to live very much longer, maybe a year or so. And for the first time in my 50 years, I find myself in the slump of despondency. He said, all about me is darkness. I'm praying for light. Here's a man who just 15 years later when he was interviewed, he said that he was totally satisfied with his choice of religion, Hinduism. And he didn't have a concern in the world. And yet, when he was faced with death, it seemed like concern and despondency was all around him. 
See, death is the great equalizer. It's described as the last enemy of man that will one day be destroyed in 1 Corinthians 15, 26. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, as is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. Or in Romans 5, 12, it tells us where death entered into the human race through Adam, through one man's sin, but that sin spread to all men. Romans 6, 23, Paul states, the wages of sin is what? Is death. Or in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 15, we're told where the devil had the power of death. The devil had the power of death until Christ died and rendered that power ineffectual. Thus releasing, it says, those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Christ was victorious over sin and death. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, we read that Christ has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Even in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, John writes that there will be one day there will be no more death. No more death. See, in this lesson that we're going to look at tonight here in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, evaluates life in the light of death. He evaluates our lives here on this earth in the light of the inevitable fact that one day men must die. We all will die. It's the one thing we do not want to face Yet, it is that which the wisest of the ancient of monarchs brings before us to teach us how to live. It's through death that we learn how to live. And so, as you turn your hearts to Ecclesiastes chapter 9, we're going to read the first 12 verses. And we're going to look at this text tonight on the subject of death, the great equalizer. Follow along in your Bibles. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of children the hearts of the children of men are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die. But the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Verse 7. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking in your hand, on your head. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. 
For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his life, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at the evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Father, we ask you to give us wisdom tonight as we look at this portion of your word and the subject of death. Inevitably, all of us will face death one day. I'm sure death has touched our lives in some way or of another. Maybe we heard about someone who died or we knew someone who died or maybe a close loved one passed on. But Lord, death has touched us all. And one day it will touch us very personally. We will die. We will breathe our last breath and we will be ushered into eternity. And Solomon is looking at the subject of death and he wants us to learn some things that will improve our life here on this earth as we anticipate death. And Father, for the Christian, for those who have put their faith or trust in Christ, death is not something to be fearful of. It's not something to run from. It's really a promotion from this life to the next. And it's with eager hearts that we await the transformation of this lowly body into the glorified state upon our death. But Lord, for those who may not have trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior, for those who have not put their faith or trust in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on Calvary, Lord, we know that what awaits them is sheer horror in the fires of hell. And so, Lord, we pray that you would rattle them and shake them, help them to understand the necessity of them putting their faith and trust in Christ the Savior who went to Calvary and paid for our sins and holds out the gift of eternal life for us to trust in and to take. Lord, we pray if there's any listening tonight who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, I pray that even now they would cry out to God, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. Father, we ask you to enable us to study this text tonight. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Well, what does death teach us? There are many things we can learn about the subject of death. But before we even get into the text tonight, I want you to be reminded, those of you who have trusted Christ, those of you who are Christians, that death for a Christian is a blessing. I've been in ministry many years and I've done countless funerals and memorial services. And I can't tell you how many times it's a blessing when I know the person who I'm doing the service for and for their loved ones. When that person, when they have trusted Christ for their salvation and they died in Christ. It's such a joyous occasion, even though it's sad that they're no longer there physically. Our hope is that we will see them one day in glory. Psalm 116 verse 15 says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is what? The death of his saints. See, Christians have a hope in Christ. Death is not something to be feared. First Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul writes in verse 13, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep or dead, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so... Through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. 
And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. See, death for a Christian is an encouraging event. We leave behind the toil and the, the, the frustration of this world. And we're ushered into God's presence because of our trust in Christ. Death is a sweet release for the Christian. Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, For to me to live is Christ, but to die is what? Is gain. And if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. He had a hard time discerning. Should he stay on earth or should he die and go to be with the Lord? He says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. See, we need to live each day as if it were our last. You know, you hear this saying all the time. I live today, it's, it's the first day of the rest of your life. Well, that could be true. That is true. It's the first day of the rest of your life. But you know what? It also might be the last day of the rest of your life. We need to have a proper biblical understanding about the fact of death. And in this lesson, through this first 12 verses here in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, we're going to learn four facts about this one event that touches everyone sooner or later, the great equalizer, death. Well, the first point there in your outline, hopefully you downloaded the outline or you're looking at it on the church app or you got it in the email, one or the other. But the first point is death establishes the fact of God's control and our accountability to him. Death teaches us that God is in control and that we are accountable to him. That's the first three verses there. See, this is a, a marvelous truth, and we can't change it, that God is in control and that we're accountable to him. And this really is, when you stop and think about it, for the believer, for those who put their faith in Christ. And so he says there in verse 1, but all this I laid to heart. He was Examining it, he says, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are what? In the hand of God. What's this do? It reminds us as believers of our dependence upon God. It reminds us of our dependence upon God. We are in God's hands. That's what he says there. That the wise, the righteous are in, the deeds are in the hand of God. See, this is a, a positive thing, not a negative thing. This is something to be celebrated, that God holds us in the palm of his hand. Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 3, it says, Yes, he loved his people. All his holy ones, or saints, were in his hand. God promises this. In verse 27 of Deuteronomy 33, it says, The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. We dwell in the everlasting arms of our God. We are in his hands. That's a wonderful security for those who have put their faith and trust in Christ, knowing that you are in the hand of God. Isaiah chapter six, uh, 62, verse 3, brings this up again. It says, you shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. We are in the hand of our creator, God. Death reminds us of our dependency upon God. And that's what he says here in verse 1. All of our deeds, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Even Jesus made reference to this. He said in John chapter 10, verses 27 to 29, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So even Jesus is saying we are in the hand, in his hand. But then he goes further in verse 29. He says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hands. So, you know, sometimes when you think about your eternal security, when you come to Christ, you are saved for all eternity. If you're truly repentant of your sins and God has done that transforming work in your heart, 
you are saved. There's no going back. There's no way you can be unsaved. There's no way God will ever retract his love and his forgiveness from you because you're in the hand of God. And some people think, wow, can't you lose your salvation? No, you cannot. Well, what if I'm in the hand of God and I want to jump out? Can I jump out? No. The Bible teaches us that, you know what's in the hand of God? <laughs> Everything is in the hand of God. All the universe and galaxies are in his hands. I mean, there's some big hands. I liked what David Hawking used to say. He said, you may think you, you can jump out of the hand of God. It's impossible. It's too big. You may be able to jump from knuckle to knuckle, but you're not going to jump out. And that's so true. That's a wonderful, tremendous truth of security for those who are in Christ to the believer. So it reminds us of our dependency upon God. And sometimes when we have a near-death experience, it kind of reminds us that we are in God's hands. I'm sure some of you have had situations, maybe health or whatever, you were a goner and somehow you're, you're still here with us. Or maybe you had an accident or you were in an accident or something happened to you and you thought, wow, that was a close one. I remember one time I was riding my motorcycle down 280, going along about 70, 75 miles an hour and just real gradual turn in the freeway. And I remember there was a car coming up in front of me and I had to get in the fast lane to go around it. And I looked over my shoulder. There was nothing there. I looked over my shoulder again. There was still nothing there. And just about the time I was going to commit and cut over to that lane, the passing lane, the fast lane, I just barely, just, I don't even know why I looked. This was three times I looked. I just barely, out of the corner of my eye, caught, I don't even know what kind of car it was, a Porsche or a Ferrari or something. It was red. And it went by me like I was standing still, and I was going 75, 80 miles an hour. And I was just about ready to pull over into that lane. I would have been gone. I would have been dead. And I remember after that, pulling off the freeway and just stopping and kind of regathering my, my thoughts because I thought, wow, that was too close for comfort. We've all had experiences like that. And we are reminded that, you know what? Our life... Death, near-death experiences remind us of our dependency upon God. Out here in California, if you commute and you drive on these freeways, you know, sometimes our relatives come from back in Pennsylvania and, and they'll visit and I take them out, out to eat or whatever. We're driving on the freeway and you can sense the tension because they're not used to all these cars and having five lanes across the freeway and driving the way we drive out here. every And we just kind of think, oh, that's just the way we drive. But for somebody who's not used to it, it can be a near-death experience every moment. So it reminds us of our dependency upon God. Secondly, death reinforces the truth that God is no respecter of persons. God is no respecter of persons. Look at what he says there in verse 2. It is the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked. What's he saying? Both die. It doesn't matter whether you live a horrible, wicked life or a completely righteous life. Both people are going to die. The good and the evil. To the clean and the unclean. To him who sacrifices and to him who doesn't sacrifice. It doesn't matter. As to the one who is, so is the sinner. And he who swears as he who shuns an oath. See, God doesn't respect people. There's no partiality with God, Romans 2.11 says. There's no respecter of persons. The same event happens to the righteous and the wicked. Death touches all of us. In verse 3 here, it also shows us, not only does it remind us of our dependency on God, and not, not only does death show us that God is no respecter of persons, persons, but it also reveals that we cannot escape God's judgment for our sin. We cannot escape it. Verse 3, this is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, he points out, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil. 
and madness is in their hearts while they live. But guess what? Look at what he says. After that, where do they go? They go to the dead. They die. Death reveals that we cannot escape God's judgment for our sin. We, we may want to escape God's judgment, but outside of Christ, there's no escaping it. Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately wicked. And even back in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, at the very beginning of the human race, it says in verse 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Think about that. Every thought, every intention, everything man did was only evil, God says, continually. See, when we have to face death, it has a tendency to cause us to clean up our act. You know, I can't tell you the, the number of times I've been in a hospital room with someone dying, and they just want to make sure that everything's square with God. They want to make sure that when they die, they're their slate is clean and they desire to trust in Christ see when you realize that God is in control and our accountability is to him and him alone the moment you die you understand that you will be faced to stand before your creator God and give an account for your life see Solomon understood this he shows it to us over and over, even in the end of the book, the whole sum of the book. What does he say? Fear God and what? Keep his commandments. Keep his commandments. So we see that death establishes the fact of God's control and our accountability to him. Well, the second thing we see here is that death in verses 4 to 6, death explains the meaning of hope. You say, wait a minute, did I hear you right? Death explains the meaning of hope? Yes. And that's what he says in verses 4 to 6. Well, how does death explain the meaning of hope? See, hope is still alive because, what, we are alive. So we can have hope. But once we die, once we experience death, we, we don't have hope for anything else. Hope is gone. Remember back in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. We see this uh, attitude of Solomon. He says, boy, it's better to be dead than to deal with all this oppression here on this earth. Talks about tears. He says, uh, you know, all this stuff's going on. There's no comfort for anybody. And then in verse 2, he says, and I thought the dead who were already dead are more fortunate than the living who are still alive. In other words, he said, it's better off to be dead than have to deal with all this stuff. And then, here in verse, chapter 9, verse 4, he talks about hope. He says, but he who is joined with all the living has hope. And so you have to stop and you have to say, well, okay, wait a minute. What is it? Do we praise the dead because they're dead? Or do we praise the living because they have hope? Solomon, you're, you're kind of not making much sense here. See, but here we learn that it's better to be alive in terms of hope. That's what he's saying. In other words, once you're dead, you have no hope. It's done. It's over with. In chapter 4, he's saying it's better to be dead than deal with all the oppression, all the problems we have. But here he's saying, you know what? Once you die, you, hope is fleeting. It's gone. There's, there's no more hope. And so death helps us to see Hope, biblically. And the first thing he says here in verse 4 is that it eliminates any advantage that you may think you have. Any advantage. What's he mean? Any skill, any talent, maybe any ability that you have that you possess that, you know, you pat, pat, pat yourself on the back and say, well, I do this pretty good. See, whatever hope we are going to have, we are going to have while we're still alive. And what he's saying here is when we die, hope that we can change anything through our abilities, our skills, our talents, our abilities, 
it's over. They're eliminated. It doesn't matter what abilities you have in the grave. Everything is gone. That's why he says there in verse 4, but he who is joined with all the living has hope. And then he says this, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. You say, what, what's he mean by that? Well, think about it. What's a lion represent? It represents authority, right? It represents power, the king of the jungle. And what he's saying here is a living dog. What was a dog back then? It wasn't a pet. It was a scavenger. It was something that just rummaged through the garbage. They didn't have them in their homes. They were dirty animals. They weren't looked up to as the worst kind of animal there was back in the time that this was written. So he's saying, you know, a lion may seem better off than a dog, but you know what? It isn't if it's dead. That's what he's saying. The day of having hope is only while you are alive. A dead lion is no better than a dog. A dog is better than a dead lion. The moment you die, there's no more using your ability, using your advantage in this life to change anything. Your ability to change anything after you die is gone because death eliminates any advantage you may think you have. But it also extinguishes any opportunity we now have. In verses 5 and 6, he points this out. See, after you die, any opportunities that you may have had before you die are gone. They're gone. Maybe you need to straighten something out with a, a loved one or a relationship, or maybe you need to express the love of Christ to someone, or maybe you, the Lord's laying something on your heart that you need to do for him. What Solomon is telling us, you better do it now while you're still breathing, while you're still alive. Because once death comes, that opportunity, whatever it may be, is going to be extinguished. It's going to be gone forever. You can't re regain it. And that's what he says in verse 5. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. <laughs> when you're dead, you're dead. And they have no more reward. For the memory of them is forgotten. Now he's speaking here in earthly terms. We believe that you don't just die and go to the grave. He's not saying that. But he's saying the impact of your life is over. Any advantages that you may have is gone. Any opportunity is extinguished. The memory of them is forgotten. You know, think back of some of the people that have passed on. Some of the people that had incredible careers, maybe in the music industry or actors or things like that. And boy, they were just really making a big impact. And all of a sudden, one day they're, they're gone, they're dead. And outside of some fans that maybe celebrate them every year, they're, they're not even in the limelight anymore. They're not on the news as they were before. They're forgotten. It says their love and their hate in verse 6 and their envy have already perished. In other words, whatever was on their heart before, it's irrelevant now because they're dead. And forever, they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. See, death is something that is final. So what do we learn from death? We learn the meaning of hope. We learn that hope only exists while we're alive. That death brings a certain seriousness to life. You know, sometimes when you're doing a memorial or a funeral, it's a very serious time. But you know what? There's, there's, there's times when we have to realize that, you know what? If we have something to do, we need to do it now because we don't know if we're going to have tomorrow. We don't know if tomorrow will be there. It will only be there if the Lord wills it to be so. Be so, but in James chapter 4, that's exactly what James says, right? James chapter 4, verse 13. He says, come now, you who say tomorrow, today or tomorrow will go to such and such a place, such and such a town, and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Big plans. Verse 14, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist, a vapor is the idea that appears for a little while and then vanishes. 
And then he gives the proper perspective in verse 15 of James 4. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, <laughs> we will live and we will do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. See, these people are making big plans for their future. Little did they know. He says, all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. What's he saying? He's saying, take care of your business now. Don't wait. If you have some issues with somebody, resolve them. Talk to them. If you have sins to confess, confess them. Maybe you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior. You know what? Now's the day of salvation. Don't put it off because you don't know what may happen tomorrow. We have to realize that we're not guaranteed tomorrow. And God is in control of all these things. Well, the third thing we see here that death does is it encourages us to enjoy what God gives us. Death encourages us to enjoy what God gives us, verses 7 to 10. Look at what he says in verse 7. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Think of this question. If you knew that you were going to die tomorrow sometime, say 24 hours from now you were going to die, what would you do between now and then? What would you do? I hope you would enjoy life until you die. I mean, I, I, I hope that you wouldn't go home and crawl in your bed. No, I'm going to die in 24 hours and just wallow in your sorrow. I mean, I would enjoy life. I would want to do things that maybe I've never done before. I want to enjoy the basic things of life. It tells us there in verse 7, it's realized in our response to daily activities. See, death encourages us to enjoy what God gives us. And when we stop and we look at our daily activities, that's what he's speaking of there. Go, eat, drink. For God has already approved what you do. The idea here is be content. It's the response of contentment. You know, if I've settled my, my issues with God, then there's going to be contentment and joy in my daily activities. See, when you come to Christ and you lay your sins on the cross and you say, Lord, forgive me, and he, he makes you a new person in Christ, guess what? He puts a joy in your heart. It's not that life is going to be any easier for you now that you're a Christian. You have the same trials maybe you did before. But all of a sudden you have this joy, this supernatural joy, because there's a contentment there. Because you know God has a purpose for you and he has a plan. And he has a destination for you. I mean, I always scratch my head when I run into some believers, so-called believers, that are just so miserable. They're just discouraged and they're down in the dumps constantly. I mean, think about it. As a believer, if you were going to die tomorrow, I mean, what a, in a way, what a blessing that would be. I mean, you can enjoy life. You can go eat whatever you want. No more dieting. Go for it. You're going to die in 24 hours. Why not? See, why are so many people miserable when they think about death? I think they're miserable because they don't know what's on the other side. But for those who know Christ, that are ready to meet the Savior, that have trusted in Christ and have lived for him and have their sins forgiven, it should be a blessed event. Maybe you're not ready to meet the Savior. Maybe you haven't repented of your sins. Maybe you haven't come to the point in your life where you need to surrender your heart to Christ and live for him. Then death would be something that I would be very fearful of. You never know when it's going to happen. You never know how it's going to happen. And then you add to that, you don't know what's going to be on the other side for you. See, is that sin in your heart that has never been confessed and forgiven 
don't put it off. Deal with it now. Don't wait. Because we're not guaranteed tomorrow. It's realized in our response to daily activities. Well, death encourages us to enjoy what God gives to us. Secondly, it's reflected in our appearance. Look at what he says there in verse 8. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. This idea of garments that were white, it's a sign of festivity. It's a sign of celebration, really. I run into some Christians, they walk around, they got ashes on their head, and they're, woe is me, you know. That's not the Christian life. Jesus came to give us life, and life more abundantly. Isaiah Chapter 61, verses 1 to 3, Isaiah says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all those who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. Listen to what he says. The oil of gladness or the oil of joy instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit that they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. See, this speaks of an appearance of a celebration. It's not a funeral. Why is it a celebration? Because we know the God who is and we know what he's doing in the world because we've trusted in him. See, it's, it's the devil's plan. It's the enemy's plan to get us to focus on all the hassles, all the trials and tribulations and tough circumstances that we have in life. That's what he wants us to focus in. Woe is me rather than the joy of the Lord. Rather than the joy of the Lord. See, we forget the reality of what we believe sometimes. And not only that, but we forget who we are in Christ. We start believing the enemy's lies. You know, you pour your life here as a Christian, it's just going to be miserable on earth, and everybody's against you, woe is me. You're focusing on the wrong thing. You're focused on your work. Maybe that's driving you crazy or, or the people at work, the troubled people you have in your life. Maybe you're focused on trials that you're in the middle of. Maybe you have medical issues. I mean, if you focus on all those things, guess what? You're going to be depressed. <laughs> you're going to be sad. You're going you're to well up with hopelessness and anger and bitterness. That's not what God calls us to. See, we've lost, I think, a sense of celebration in the church. When you stop and think of the, the blessings that God has given to us, the blessings and the time, he's given all these things so that we could enjoy them. Now, don't get me wrong. We go through tough times. We go through tribulations. We go through trials. We don't ignore those times. But you know what? God gives us a joy to sustain us and to endure those times with joy in our hearts. 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Paul says rejoice what? Rejoice always. He doesn't say rejoice when you feel like it. He says rejoice always. Or Philippians 4.4. 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. He couldn't contain himself. And Paul, of all people, was someone just based on his circumstances, didn't have any reason practically, logically, to be rejoicing. He's being persecuted, he was in prison for doing the work of the Lord, not for doing something wrong. And he has joy in his heart. Psalm 47, 1 says, Clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God with the loud songs of joy. See, when we lose the sense of celebration in our Christian life, when we lose the sense of celebration and joy for a God who loves us, who created us, who cares for us, 
who knows everything there is to know about us and yet still loves us. When we lose the sense of celebration for a God who knows the beginning from the end, who is literally in charge of everything around us and in our lives, When we stop and think it's that God that we're going to be standing before, that we will see when we die. We'll see him face to face. We'll be filled with joy unspeakable and full of glory, the Bible says. I can't wait for that day when I'm leaving this earth and going to be with my Savior that I've loved and served most of my life. I mean, you tell me that's no reason for joy and celebration and shouting? You're wrong. You need to refocus your Christian life on, on the many blessings that God has given you. We should live in joy. We should live in celebration. What teaches us that? Death teaches us that. That's what Solomon's saying. Well, it's realized in our response of our daily activities. It's reflected in our appearance. But in verse 9, look at this. For those of you who are married, and even those of you who are single, but mostly those of you who are married, what's it say in verse 9? It says, enjoy life with the wife whom you love. <laughs> what's that saying? All the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life, and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. See, God has given us marriage here on this earth for this time only. There's no marriages in heaven, just so you understand. You're not going to have a wife and husband relationship in heaven. Even Proverbs chapter 5, verse 18 tells us, Rejoice with the wife of your youth. See, it's that marriage of companionship. That God gave us. He, he graced us with that relationship here on earth. But it's not going to last forever. I mean, when death comes, guess what? It's over. You're no longer married. I mean, that may be hard to understand. You know, sometimes people say, well, gee, in heaven, are, are, isn't my wife going to be my wife? No, she's not. And he's not going to be your husband. I think you'll still know each other. But you're not going to have that bond of marriage that's only here for this time here on earth. It's a temporary institution that God has given us to make our lives more joyful and more full. It shouldn't be a hassle. It should be fun. You know, now, don't get me wrong. I mean, there's no perfect marriage. But life is too short to just have a miserable marriage. <laughs> it's just way too short. Because marriage is only temporary. So just live it up. Live joyfully with your spouse. Why? Because death awaits. Death awaits. See, death teaches us to get it right with our spouse now. Don't put it off. Don't wait. You know, if you have issues with your husband... You have issues with your wife. What's the Bible say? You know, don't let the sin go down on your wrath, or the sun go down on your wrath. Why? You should resolve those issues. Because death is coming. You're not always going to have that person as your spouse. See, death teaches us that really the longer we're married, the more joyful it should be the more blessing it should be. Your marriage can be joyful if you focus on the right things. It can be fun. I mean, like I said, nobody has a perfect marriage. But you know what? I'm, I've had a blast in my marriage since I've been married 27 years. Had some hard times too. Don't get me wrong. You take two sinners and you put them in a house and you say live in perfect harmony, you know, <laughs> that's asking for disaster, right? Well, that's why you have to have the Spirit of God helping you relate to one another and love each other continually. But don't ever, don't ever think that 
that marriage is not to be enjoyed here on this earth because that's what death teaches us that truth. You know, think of it this way. If you knew your spouse was going to die tomorrow, uh, how would you treat them today? You'd probably be gracious with them. You'd probably be loving with them. You'd probably be compassionate with them, forgiving with them. That's how we need to think of our marriages. Because God forbid, boy, you know, I thought about this several times when we've had an argument or something like that, and I thought, boy, let's just resolve this. Because, gosh, if, if somehow one of us died and it wasn't resolved, that would be so hard. I wouldn't wish that on anybody. And I've dealt with people, unfortunately, that weren't able to communicate with their loved one before they died, when they really wanted to. And boy, their life is just filled with multiple, more times of grief and burden because they didn't have that opportunity to make things right. Well, it's also recognized in the work that we do, not only revealed in our marriages, but it's recognized in the work. Look at verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Do it with your might. Now, what are we, we, we talking about here? Remember, we're, we're, we're talking about death encouraging us to live, to enjoy what God gives us. To enjoy what God gives us. He gives us marriage. He gives us also work. So he says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. All your might is the idea. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol or the grave. That's just another word for the grave when you die is, is what he's speaking of to which you are going. Whatever you do, do it with all your gusto. Do it with all your strength. And, th and that's supported in, in the New Testament too in Colossians chapter 3 verses 23 and 25. Paul writes, for whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. There it is again. See, God is a just God. And he will carry out all the judgment that needs to happen. What do we have to do? We have to focus on the calling and the work that God has given us to do. Don't grow weary in that. Whatever you do, work heartily as unto the Lord. You know, I hear so many people talking of retirement. Retirement is like their whole life is focused on being able to turn 65 and not have to ever work again. I don't think that's healthy for people. I just don't. I, I've seen too many guys who have worked their whole life, a lot of times in law enforcement, and they finally get their little plaque and 25 years is over and boy, they get their, their big pension and they have plans to go buy a ranch or move out of California and get an RV and travel around the world, whatever it might be. Only to hear weeks later, they're dead. They were in an accident or they died of a heart attack or they got cancer. And here they worked all their life just for this dream of retirement. There's nothing wrong with retiring. I'm not saying that. But just because you retire doesn't mean you don't work. Stay active. Do stuff for the Lord. Um, it's basically, work is something that happens here on earth. You're not going to work in the grave. I think we'll be, have work in heaven to do. But once we're dead... We have no more impact here on earth. And a lot of times, I heard one guy one time say, financial assets are no substitution for work. And I often wondered, you know, what if, what if somehow, you know, you just didn't need anything anymore? Would you still work? Would you still do what you do? See, if God has given us something to do, we should continue doing it <laughs> until he calls us home. We don't just give up. We definitely don't want to give up too early. We want to be useful for the Lord. Even if we have one more day to live, I'm going to try to live it 
for the glory of God. Well, we've seen that death establishes the fact that God's in control and our accountability is to him. We saw that death explains the meaning of hope because there's no hope after you die. Can't change anything after you die. Thirdly, we saw that death encourages us to enjoy what God gives to us. Enjoy life. There's nothing wrong with that. The last thing quickly is death eliminates any pride or self-confidence. Death eliminates any pride or self-confidence. Look at what he says in verse 11. Again, I saw under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. Wow, what, what's he saying here? Well, he's saying this is true because our abilities cannot affect the outcome. When death comes knocking, your abilities don't mean a thing when you die. Don't mean a thing. I've known a lot of very smart people, very gifted people, very um, successful people. And you know what? After they die, it's irrelevant. What they knew is gone. What they did is gone. Hopefully they left a legacy, but they have no more impact because your abilities cannot affect the outcome. And then secondly, in verse 12, he points out it's true because we don't know when death will happen. See, death eliminates any kind of pride or self-confidence because you never know when you're going to die. I believe we all die on time according to God's plan. He says our days are numbered. But look at what he says in verse 12. For man does not know his time. Doesn't know it. They're just like a fish that gets caught in a net or birds that are caught in a snare. See, death is rarely ever expected. And God made it that way. Why? So we would walk in humility. So that we would walk in sensitivity to our accountability to him. I mean, if I knew that I was not going to die for 10 years, that would change the way I live now. If I knew that fact. On the other hand, if I knew I was going to die in two days, that would change the way I live as well. See, God doesn't give us that information. We die when God says we're going to die. And so you have to ask the question, Lord, what would you want me to do while I'm still here? Every morning you wake up and you take that breath of air and you get out of your bed, what does God want you to do today? Because today may be your last day on earth. None of us know when death is coming. You never know what will happen next. Disaster can strike at any time. Think of all the people who were doing so well several months ago before this COVID-19 virus struck. And now you have people that have lost their livelihood, they've lost their stores, they've lost their restaurants, they've lost their careers, all because of something we don't even see, a virus. You don't know what's going to happen. Disaster can strike at any time, and usually including the time we least expect it. There's many cases of that I read the story of, of Gene Dixon, the famous American uh, psychic. <laughs> On January 2nd, 1997, she predicted that a famous entertainer will leave a nation in mourning within weeks. That's what her prediction was. Well, we don't know if the nation really mourned or not for her, but just three weeks later, she died of a heart attack. And I, I doubt she ever saw it coming. Or another example, Bob Cartwright. He was disappointed when he was unable to accept the invitation to fly to New York with his friend Tyler, who was a professional, uh, involved in professional sports, and his a professional bass player, Corey Liddell, Little, for a, a playoff game between the Yankees and the Tigers. He was meant to go on this, this flight. And he felt differently when he heard the sad news that both of them have crashed into an apartment building and perished. On the news clip, he says, I was supposed to be on that plane. So you never know. 
Yet, one month later, that same individual, Cartwright, died in another plane crash near his home here in California. Or there's the case of Donald Peters who bought, back in 2008, he bought two lottery tickets in Connecticut, and he won. And one of his tickets was worth $10 million. Can you imagine? But he wasn't as lucky as you might think because he died of a heart attack later on that very day he won the lottery. See, none of those unfortunate, unexpected events would have surprised Solomon. He says, time and chance happen to them all. Man knows not his time. And if there's one thing that we need to understand about death is that when we understand it biblically, it gives us all the motivation and all the reason we need to live each day fully for the Lord we serve and love. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for this study tonight in Ecclesiastes 9. And Lord, we know that death is truly the great equalizer. That no one here on earth will go without dying sooner or later pending your return, of course. But Father, I pray for anyone who may be listening to this message and have not settled things with you. Lord, the Bible says that you created us to have a relationship with you. But then sin entered into the world and that relationship was severed. And it was only when Christ came and paid the price of our sin on Calvary. Now there's a way that we can reconcile our relationship with you. And it's through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you're listening to, to this message and you've yet to put your faith, your trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, I would ask you to do that now. You just cry out to God and you say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Today is the day of salvation. You can turn to God and you can express grief over your sin, sorrow over your sin, and ask him to forgive you. Put your faith and trust in what Christ has done for you. Cry out to him, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. If you pray that from a sincere heart, He'll do just that. He'll forgive you of your sin. He'll make you a new person in Christ. And you'll never look back. For those of us who are in Christ, I pray that we would be motivated to live each day to the fullest, not for ourselves, but for your glory. Knowing that one day, we too will be ushered from this earth into all eternity and into your presence. And for that, we can definitely... Uh, live a life of celebration and rejoicing, knowing that that awaits us. So Father, I pray that you would continue to bless us as a church, continue to allow um, people to serve you. We pray for our missionaries, that you would watch over them and keep them safe. Lord, we pray for our country. We pray for our leadership, our president and vice president. We pray that you would give them wisdom, that you would protect them physically as well as spiritually. And Lord, we just pray that um, you would allow our uh, governing authorities to open up our country once again at the appropriate time. And Lord, that it would happen uh, sooner than later. Lord, I know that a lot of lives have been devastated by this sheltering in place. And Father, we want to do things smartly, but we don't want to do things beyond <laughs> what's needed. And so Father, I pray that you would give them wisdom, even beyond themselves. I pray that it wouldn't become a political football that they're trying to kick around but Lord, that they would be willing to uh, submit this to you and trust you to uh, protect those who want to return to work. We ask that you would just bless us, give us a good week. In Jesus' precious name, amen.